Church, my favorite movie, all time, is Out of Africa. Might be the only one here, but it's my favorite movie. And uh, Robert Redford, Meryl Streep, and uh, there's several reasons I like it a lot, not the least of which is the cinema photography and the beauty. Now, it's a true story. Isaac Dennison, Danish, moves to Africa, buys a farm, and uh, lives there. Now, I only know two or three movies where the movie's better than the book. This is one of them. Book's not that good. Movie's great. <laughs> she said later that her highlight of her life in Africa was when her friend Dennis took her up flying because he wanted her to see the world as God sees it. Watch this brief clip. He began our friendship with a gift. And later, not long before Savo, he gave me another. An incredible gift. A glimpse of the world through God's eye. And I thought, yes, I see. This is the way it was intended. Just a glimpse of the magnificent world that God created in a magnificent universe. And we began a series last week on Genesis 1 through 3, that God created the entire galaxies and universe with His mere breath. Genesis 1 through 3 is the foundational passage in all of Scripture. Every major theme in the Bible is introduced in Genesis 1 through 3. There may be elaboration, and there is, but in seed form, it's all in these three weighty chapters. This morning, I'm going to read the first eight verses. We're only, we're only going to uh, look at verses 6 through 25, but I want to begin by reading Genesis 1, 1 through 8, if you'd stand with me, please. 
Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Please be seated. Word of God. Now, last week we looked at the first five verses of the Bible. We saw that Genesis 1-1 is a summary statement of the chapter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is, he created the universe. He created everything. And then in verse 2, we see this dark, watery, formless uh, planet is already there. God, the Spirit, hovering over that. And most likely what is going on is this, is that verse 1 announces the summary. Verse 2 is... Uh, the result of a prior creation, and that prior creation, the absolute creation sometime before Genesis 1, included the creation of angels, a third of which rebelled, led by Lucifer, and the judgment left this watery, dark, formless, chaotic planet. And in the midst of that, God creates the world as we know it. Beginning in verse 3, the first day of creation, with let there be light, and there was light. And just with his mere breath, it's it, the, the universe, verse by verse, is created. Each day there's going to be a pattern, a rhythm of creation. The announcement, and God said. Then there's a command, let there be light. Then the result, and there was light. An evaluation, and God saw that the light was good. And a conclusion, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. This beautifully, symmetrically structured Genesis 1 giving the overview. Now, day two, which is where we begin today, the formation of the sky and the sea. In verse six, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let us separate the waters from the waters. An expanse is, refers to the atmosphere, to the sky, between the terrestrial waters and the atmospheric waters. Perhaps this is a reference to a pre-flood canopy of water vapor, which would provide a thick cloud up there that will provide a greenhouse effect, thus helping to explain the long lifespans in the book of Genesis, as well as provide a water source for a worldwide flood beginning in Genesis 6. Notice in verse 8, and God called the expanse heaven. Now, notice throughout this passage that God is going to name the various parts of creation. We saw it, creation. We saw it in uh, day one, uh, God called the light day, God called the dark, darkness night, and, and just note as I read through, passage by passage, how God is going to name the various creation, parts of creation. In the ancient world, the naming of anything was just a, a special token that you own it, you're in charge, you're in control. Uh, when we have children, we get a little token of that because we name those kids. 
God names the universe. Now, this is in a polytheistic, pagan universe. There had never been, you know, just this belief in one God and understands there's only one God. So for them, they had gods, sun gods, moon gods, forest gods. They had these gods everywhere, and you had to appease this one, appease this one. Oh, no. Genesis 1 declares there is only one God. God, the uncreated God, created everything. And he names them because he's in charge. He's in control. And when he gets down to man, he names him Adam. He names him her Eve because God is in control of us. He is the Lord of all creation, including you and me. This means we're accountable to obey him, to serve him, to worship him. He's our God. He's our maker. God called the expanse day, or called the expanse heaven. All right, day three. The fertile fertile earth, verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Now, that brief sentence, and it was so, is repeated throughout Genesis 1, and it just sort of uh, just suggests the sovereign power of God. He says it, it was so. It's done. No doubt about it. God called, there it is again, the naming, God called the dry land earth And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Another one of those patterns through Genesis 1. It was good. It was good. It was good. And then we get to the end of Genesis 1, particularly after the creation of humans, the crown of God creations, and it was very good. This was very different in the ancient world and in much of the modern world because in the ancient world, a lot of times, Uh, especially with Greek philosophers, Uh, they regarded spirit as good and matter and body as somehow tainted and evil. That's reflected in beliefs today such as Buddhism. That's not a biblical viewpoint. A biblical viewpoint, God created it all. It's good as God created it. The body is inherently good. Food, body, marriage, work, sex, all of that is good. It's good. God takes delight in it, and so can we. We can enjoy God's creation. And in fact, when God, the Son, the eternal Son of God, comes to this planet, he takes on a body. So you know it's not evil. And he has a body today in heaven, the God-man. So here is is the perspective on the physical matter and universe around us. All righty, verse 11. And God said... Now, note in this passage, he creates the plant life, the emphasis on seeds that God implants in the plants. All right, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Four times in that brief passage, seed. One writer, Mark Batterson, commented, he says, standing beneath a giant sequoia is like standing in the shadow of the Creator. It was absolutely awe-inspiring on my first visit to Yosemite National Park. I've managed to work in Yosemite, one of my favorite places, the first two Sundays in Genesis. Maybe not next week. He said, these magnificent creations can measure more than 20 feet wide and 300 feet tall. 
The root system goes down about 12 feet and stretches out into an area about 80 feet in diameter. Their resistance to disease, insect damage, and fire make them almost indestructible. Their built-in ability, built ability to recycle and regenerate contributes to their 2,000-year lifespan. They're just incredible. He goes on, he says, now here's the amazing thing. The giant sequoia was once a seed, and that sequoia seed is no bigger than the seed that produces a tomato plant. That's the power of a single seed. He says, and one sequoia, when it matures, will produce 400,000 seeds of its own every year. So in that one seed, isn't just a tree, but a whole forest. And you think, again, the wonder of God's creation, the beauty, the magnificence of God's creation. The earth is charged with the grandeur of God. It's charged. Now we begin day four with verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Now, remember we had light in, verse, in day one. Only in day three are we going to have, uh, day four, the, the sun, moon, and stars. The, and, let them be, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. Purpose of the stars above the vast universe is to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Let me just parenthetically say, God doesn't name them sun. It's almost as if because the sun was so worshipped, you know, the thing of the Egyptian god Ra, or the moon was so worshipped, stars were so worshipped, uh, it's almost an afterthought for God. He created it, no problem. Boom. And God saw the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. If you're here last week, I just reminded you there's a beautiful symmetry that was uh, kind of based on verse 2. There's a famous Hebrew phrase, tohu wabohu, which means formless and void, that is formless and empty. That's in verse 2, and that sets the structure for the, the six days of creation. The first three days of creation is, are days of farming. I think we've got a chart on that. The days of farming to replace the formlessness. And then the next three days, days 4, 5, and 6, are days of filling to replace the void or the emptiness. Day one, light and darkness, corresponds to day four. Day two corresponds to day five. Day three corresponds to six. Days of farming and days of filling, just one of many, many beautiful pieces of the poetic symmetry in Genesis 1. In verse 14, God says that there will be stars, that the stars are going to be for signs, signs to mark the seasons, to point us to God that God created the stars to bring light on the earth. One scholar commented about the stars. Because of astrology in the ancient world and in the modern world, he said as signs they will speak for God, not for fate, but they rule only as light bearers, not as powers. In these few simple sentences, the lie is given to a superstition astrology as old as Babylon and as modern as the newspaper horoscope. Wish they'd stop printing them. On the size of the stars in the galaxies, one writer observes, 
How does one grasp the meaning of a visible universe that is at least 30 billion light years across? Okay, again, 30 billion light years, a light year, light 186,000 miles per second for a year, 30 billion years, and, and, and our minds are reeling at the size of, uh, of the universe, and hence at the, si- the size of the God who created by his mere breath. The writer goes on to say, you know, of the 100 billion galaxies, each containing 100 billion, hundreds of billions of stars. He says, one of the objects relatively close to, a, near to us is a star named Epsilon, which is actually larger than the orbit of Pluto in our solar system. If it were hollow, it, would, it could contain more than 2.3 billions of our suns. Gulp. I like the little statement of Lady Julian, a mystic Christian writer in past times. She said, I've got this vision of God who's holding a little nut in his hand, and that nut is all that he has made. And he's so big. Our God is so great. And right at the outset of the Bible, we just started reminding that God is God. He has no rival. He has no peer. He has no equal. He's God. Everything else in the universe is not. Day five, corresponding to day two, creatures for the sea and sky. We had the sea, the sky, and two, now creatures for the sea and sky. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. I understand uh, you scuba divers see incredible beauty underneath the waters, the glory of God, the grandeur of God. And uh, I don't know if there are any bird watchers here. I don't run into so many of those, but uh, see the glory of God in the dovetails, the red-tailed sparrows and the bald eagles and so many, are, uh, so many more. Saw some glimpse of that in the Out of Africa clip. And then finally, in day six, we come to the culminating day. Now, first he's going to create the animal world and then humans, which is clearly we're going to see next week. We're going to come to that part next week. The crown of creation, the only part of creation created in God's image. And the immense meaning of that, implication for our lives. But at the start of day six, in verse 24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to its kind, their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kinds. And God saw that it was good. So here we come through fairly quickly, just an overview of the six days of creation, right up until the culminating creation of man and woman. A few notes before we wrap up about this. Let me first of all say something about the Bible and science. There is no conflict between an accurate understanding of the Bible and accurate science. If it seems like there's a conflict between the Bible and science, either we misunderstand what the Bible says or science does not yet grasp the whole truth and they hopefully will learn more later. When I was in college, I took a history of science. I don't really like science, but I took a history of science course. And it was amazing to me, particularly with medicine, how much things changed 
over time. You know, for a while it was this theory and then it was that theory, and we're still learning more and more about the physical universe. Thank God for you scientists out there, but we're still learning. Sometime back, there was a cover story on Time Magazine about the origins of the universe and cosmology. And I uh, kept this quote from Time Magazine. The experts don't know for sure how old or how big the universe is. They don't know what most of it is made of. They don't know in any detail how it began or how it will end. And we think about the limitations of our knowledge with science. And let me just remind you, there is no conflict between the Bible, if we understand it right, and science as we understand it right. I would encourage you, if you've got kids headed off to high school and college, they get that perspective. And if you are more scientific-oriented, you might get one of the innumerable books that involve Christianity and science. You should also be aware that today in our world that so many physicists uh, realize there's got to be a creator God. For example, Yale physicist Henry Morganeau concludes there's only one convincing answer for the intricate laws that exist in nature, creation by an omnipotent, omniscient God. Or Robert Griffiths, who won the Heinemann Prize in mathematical physics, whatever that is, but he must be a smart guy. He said, if we need an atheist for a debate, we go to the philosophy department. There aren't much, there aren't much help in the physics department. Astrophysicist Hugh Ross. Now, you ought to know that name, Hugh Ross. Hugh Ross, impeccable credentials, kind of like a you know, Caltech PhD, taught at places like Harvard and Yale. Devoted Christ follower, writes widely on the Bible and science. You ought to know the name Hugh Ross. Even I read one of his books, um, The Creator and Cosmos. In there, he gives this example. He says that there's so many physical, there, there are these physical cons, constants about the universe that if they weren't true to the minutest degree, it'd been possible for the uh, gravitational forces to overcome matter and for there to be life on the earth. He gave this example. He said, if the number of electrons are not equal to the number of protons in the universe, to the degree of 1 times 10 to the 37th. All right. You know, that's just one big number. I don't know how big that is. But 10 to the 37th power, if the number of protons in the universe weren't the same to that degree, the number of electrons, there couldn't be the earth as as we know it. And he says there's a number of those constants, and perhaps that's why so many physicists realize there had to be a creator. Secondly, or not, not, let me just elaborate that a tad more. The point of Genesis 1 is not how, the how of creation or the when of creation, but the who of creation. Bible-believing Christian scientists, PhD-type guys, can and do disagree about the age of the earth and to what extent God used processes of evolution. They they can disagree about that, but the issue is not the how and the when of creation, Genesis 1. Don't ever let that be the issue. Quickly move the issue to the real issue, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ died for their sin. How are you going to respond to that? That is the issue. The famous scientist Galileo, a devoted Christ follower, who said the Bible tells us how to go to heaven and not how the heavens go. Second closing point comes from one of our executive pastors, close friend of mine, Michael Micken, sent me this note about uh, the fact that the earth is not the center of the universe, but yet God created the universe for us. 
And he elaborated in this way. He said, all the heavenly bodies are created for us to provide signs, to mark seasons, to give light upon the earth. It also means that God lovingly had us in mind when he created the billions of galaxies that look like tiniest, the tiniest pinpoints of light. He had us for signs, for seasons, lights on earth. He, he continued, we, we as humans are not the center of the universe, God is, but the infinite majestic God had us in mind when he created the universe. We are so precious to him that everything he created was carefully fine-tuned to make this world the perfect home for us. He was thinking of you because of his love for you when he created the universe. I mean, think about that. The glory of God to be so great and yet to care about us. No wonder the Psalms, Psalm 8, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? It's amazing. It's amazing. This is his heart for you and me. The third thing and most important thing that comes out of Genesis 1, we saw this last week, we see it this week, is that when you reflect on God's creation, ex nihilo, out of nothing, he just creates, he breathes, he speaks, and it springs into existence, and you get some idea of the greatness of God, some glimpse of, of he is so big, and we reflect, there is no one like God. He is so much bigger than us that only God is God, uncreated, all the rest of the universe is created. And that means that not only is God great beyond imagination, but however big our problems are, God is bigger. However overwhelming the problem that you are dealing with this morning may seem to you, God is so much bigger than your biggest problem because he's great. He's the creator. He's the uncreated creator. He has no rival. He has no equal. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is the sovereign God who creates by his mere worth. He is all-powerful. He is so vast. Now, here's the challenge point. Even those of us who know that, who read our Bibles, when we're praying for this pressing problem that is just suffocating us, and we keep praying and we keep praying. And, and if God's not answering when we want and like we want, then at times maybe we think, well, maybe God doesn't hear my prayers. Or maybe God has forgotten me. Or maybe that God doesn't care about me. The Bible talks about that. There is a magnificent passage in Isaiah 40 talking about the greatness of God including the greatness of the stars. And right after proclaiming for 26 verses the greatness of God, then he addresses the Israelites who are thinking, God has forgotten me. Why doesn't God care about me? And this is what God says to us this morning. It's in Isaiah 40, verse 26. After recounting the greatness, now pointing to the stars, Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Okay, when you're in the midst of overwhelming problems and you think that God doesn't hear, remember who created these. He brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. Remember? He made them. He owns them. He called them all by name by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O oh, Jacob, 
and speak, O Israel? Why do you say, O woods edger, and speak, O woods edger? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So we're not going to figure out all that God does and allows in our lives. So what then do we do in response? He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Those that wait on the Lord, those that keep praying to the Lord, those that trust in the Lord and not their own understanding, those who hope in the Lord, have you not heard, O oh, woods edge? Have you not seen? And then the New Testament erupts, and, and God, the Creator, comes to the planet as one of us. God and man. And he says to us, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This morning, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and rest. Stand with me, please. I would urge you, Maybe right now, maybe later today, prayerfully reflect on Isaiah 40. Those who wait on the Lord, and they will keep on praying. Lord, be with these dear people that I love, Lord, but that you love so much. You made the world for them. Bless them. Be with them. Lord, expand our vision of who you are. May we see you as who you are. Friend, if you're here and you've never trusted this incredible God who became incarnate in Jesus, breathe a prayer. Humble yourself before God. Oh, God, I am a sinner. Would you save me? And he'll answer that prayer. He'll answer that prayer. Lord, we bless you in Christ's name. Amen.